So I think one of the most exciting places for policy analysis and policy making is at the intersection between programs. And I think because academia is very siloed and government is very siloed and we tend to have our own areas of expertise and often we're structurally kind of constrained to focus on particular things. Welcome to another episode of the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. I'm interview editor Lucy Schmitz. As the middle of the semester approaches, senior interview editor Eric Dank and I got to sit down with Maria Canchong. Currently a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Robert M. LaFollette School of Public Affairs, Dr. Canchon also served as Associate Dean for Fiscal Initiatives and Social Sciences for the College of Letters and Sciences at Wisconsin-Madison from 2011 to 2014. In 2014, she was nominated to serve as Assistant Secretary for the Administration for Children and Families within the Department of Health and Human Services. She later served as senior advisor to the Secretary of HHS and Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Administration for Children and Families in 2015 and 2016. Dr. Kanchan will start her tenure as Dean of the McCourt School of Public Policy in February, and we are lucky enough to have the opportunity to chat with her about her research, child welfare and immigration, and her experience at the Department of Health and Human Services. And on to our interview with Dean Kanchan. We had mentioned in our luncheon that our theme for the year is rethinking governance. What are some of the innovative ways that people have rethought family and poverty policies during your time with the federal government? What programs and policies are really worth rethinking? What are sort of the ones that are out there right now that deserve more attention? So that's a pretty broad for question. Sure. For sure. And we don't have three or four days. So let me, let me focus on one particular area that touches on a lot of the work that I did at ACF and a lot of the work that I've done as an academic, which is I think we continue often kind of implicitly in our head to have this idea of a idealized family that's a mother and a father and their children in common, and maybe even that the father's the primary breadwinner and the mom might be a stay-at-home mom. And I think if you ask most people about that kind of father-knows-best family, they'd say, oh, no, that's not a contemporary family. But a lot of our policies still have that family in mind. Um, and I think one of the things that um, policy analysts can do is kind of look at the demographics and look at the reality of the families that are being served and the families in our country and think about the disjuncture between those policies and the reality for those families. So... Let me just give you a couple of examples. So one would be most parents are also workers. And so we often don't have, whether it's employment regulations or the expectations we have for parents being involved in educational programs or the expectations we have for how to provide health care, we don't necessarily have in mind that most people who are parenting are also working in the paid labor market. And what are the implications of that? And what innovations do we need in policy to accommodate that, to make it possible for people to do both of those jobs well. And speaking of the labor market, um, one of the reasons we might need to rethink governance and poverty is that the labor market is dramatically rethinking itself in addition to the family unit. You mentioned in the introduction of changing poverty, changing policies, 
that a high school degree isn't worth what it used to be. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that and how you think we can equip vulnerable workers for a changing economy? So, I mean, what I mean by that is that um, in the 1950s and 60s, it was possible for one worker with a high school degree to support a family. And while there are exceptions to the rule, that's a lot less possible in today's economy. So many more families rely on two earners and to have a job that has benefits and a salary that can support a family requires more than a high school degree in most cases. Now managing the kind of dynamic economy that we have is going to require a lot of different kinds of innovations. And Again, more than we can tackle here. But I would say that one of the issues that seems really crucial to me is institutions that will help us manage the growing inequality that we face in our economy. And so I think those, one of the things that really encourages me is I think that discussion around policy options for both reducing inequality of labor market outcomes and then also mitigating some of the negative consequences of the inequality of the labor market is a lot more kind of engaged and robust than it might have been a decade ago. So we have really serious discussion about a range of things. So, you know, yes, the EITC, but also child allowance, also basic income, also the pros and cons of alternative minimum wages. We are at a different, still a very contentious, but a different place in terms of publicly available health insurance or having a way for people to access health care that might not be so tied to employment. So I think there's a bigger discussion now of those issues, and that will be really critical to mitigating the downsides of both the volatility of the labor market and then the inequality that it's producing. So I uh, was kind of curious about the EITC a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something that's really popular. Uh, It comes up in even our examples in our classroom Mm -hmm. here. If it's so popular and there's sort of a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who are interested, why isn't more frequently employed or what are the limitations of the EITC given its popularity? And I guess is that popularity deserved? I think the popularity is deserved. I think the key thing about the EITC, its key strength, is that a lot of times when we want to provide income support to families, we worry about the work disincentive. And so I'm trained as an economist, so of course that's kind of Econ 101. And so when we think about things like a child allowance or when we think about something like a basic income, one of the key issues that people raise is the work disincentive. So the great advantage of the earned income tax credit is that it supplements earnings. And so for low wage workers, the more you work, the greater the benefit. And so that's part of what makes it so popular. I think what limits it in some ways is that it doesn't have the same kind of counter-cyclical, except for people in a very particular range, effects that other kinds of income supports have. So people who find themselves without work will also find themselves without an earned income tax credit. And so it doesn't provide the same kind of safety net that cash welfare does. Now, you asked about why don't we expand it. In fact, the EITC has expanded hugely, and especially if you compare it, say, to 
what's happened to cash welfare. <laughs> um, so it has really carries a huge proportion of income support that we have for families. Now there's, I think, a lot of ways to expand it in terms of, for example, uh, making it more available to non-custodial parents, you know, often to fathers who might be working and paying child support and don't have the same kind of earned income tax credit that they would if they were living with their children. We also want to talk a little bit about your time at HHS and your various roles there. In your roles at the Department of Health and Human Services, you organize policy around the care of unaccompanied minors and undocumented minors. Can you talk a little bit about how your research influenced your policy decisions there and how you dealt or how HHS dealt with undocumented families? So one thing that might be of interest to McCourt students is that I think one of the things that was most important to me in the work that I did in HHS was some pretty basic modeling and economic demography skills. I spent a lot of time with Excel spreadsheets um, uh, trying to understand the flow of children and the number of children that we had in our care. And so it's, it really is a, just a very challenging nuts and bolts logistical problem to provide care to so many children. And I think we're seeing that today as the kind of census of kids has risen to unprecedented levels, the challenges and how important it is to understand who's arriving and then how quickly you can place them with a sponsor. So that was a big piece of my job. I think the more research-oriented piece that most influenced my work on unaccompanied children was having worked with the child welfare system. So I think there's a couple of lessons you learn when you're in child welfare, and one of them is it's really hard to substitute for parents. Um, when the government takes on the responsibility of caring for children, that is a, a really very, very serious responsibility, and providing adequately for children is very, very challenging, and making decisions about when to reunify them with family or who to allow to care for them is a really fraught decision process. And so I think that changed my perspective because I both was very attentive to how serious the issues were, and at the same time understood that any system that is caring for thousands and thousands of children is gonna have some bad outcomes. And it's important to do everything you can to minimize those bad outcomes, but you can't let your policy be driven or dis you can't be distracted from caring for children by one sensational event that happens here or there that gets a lot of attention in the press or on the Hill. But you can't take your eyes off of running the program role of caring for these children while there is a time of separation from their family. Speaking of that sort of vulnerability and that responsibility that comes with caring for those children, what do you think can be done during that time of separation and while the government has this responsibility to safeguard the rights and well-being of these children? What policies do you recommend or have you thought about? Uh, so, I mean, I think the most fundamental thing is by placing the unaccompanied children's program in the Office of Refugee Resettlement, in ORR, in the Administration for Children and Families within HHS, rather than having it be in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, that was an acknowledgement that the responsibility, that the fundamental role of the unaccompanied children's program is a family-serving, child-serving role. 
HHS and ACF is responsible for the child welfare program, it's responsible for the homeless youth program, it's responsible for the welfare program, it's responsible for Head Start, it's not responsible for border security or immigration enforcement. And if the unaccompanied children's program were a detention program or an enforcement-oriented program, it would not belong in HHS. It's really important, I think, for the well-being of children for it to maintain its focus on child well-being. So a very concrete example of the implications of that are, um, you know, there is now a policy that when individuals step forward to sponsor a child and, and receive a child who's in government care, that the information that they provide that is designed to be used to vet them as sponsors, as appropriate people to provide care, is now also being used for immigration enforcement. And as you might expect, that means that many people are not willing to step forward because they may not have their documents in order. They may be a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or an aunt and uncle and be in a really good position to provide appropriate care for that child, but they may not have documentation. And so if the unaccompanied children's program is fundamentally an immigration program, then it needs to enforce immigration law. If it's fundamentally a child-serving program, then it needs to get kids into care with appropriate sponsors as quickly as possible. And trying to do both of those things at the same time puts the program in an untenable position. Yeah, it can um, provide a scary disincentive to come forward and care for children that you might otherwise be a reasonable caregiver for. And it puts the program in a position where it can't be successful. So, you know, one of the things we know, if you want students to progress well in a class, you want to be very clear about what's expected <laughs> in that class, and then you want to provide the resources that are necessary for students to meet those expectations. And if you have conflicting expectations, then you've pretty much assured that students won't succeed. And I think I feel badly for the organizations and my former colleagues who are trying to do kind of different things at the same time. So you mentioned a little bit earlier that the narrative that might come out of the media or, or Capitol Hill mm -hmm. on this sort of issue might not necessarily do a great job of reporting what the real issues at hand are. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're very interested in what they might be missing on top of what you mentioned mm -hmm. in this sort of competing mission issue between different organizations and what exactly is the goal with these children. So if you could just expand on what Capitol Hill and reporters might be missing in this issue. Well, so I think there's one really clear and obvious example of something that's been really misunderstood. And I think it comes partly, programs become more or less popular and when they're being unpopular, then people interpret everything in the most negative light sometimes. And so this is an example. There was a lot of press coverage about all the children that were missing. And those children were not missing at all. And I think eventually there were some clarifications, but they, the clarifications weren't picked up nearly as much as the missing were. And during the last presidential administration, there were concerns about children's well-being after they had been placed with sponsors. Now, ORR and the UC program don't have the mandate or the funding to provide any services to children after they're placed. So that's a real challenge. But they decided that one way that was manageable that would be helpful would be to have an emergency call-in number. 
So all children, when they're released and their sponsors, are given an 800 number for a call center that they can call if they have any questions or concerns. And then there's also a post-placement call that's made 30 days after the children are released to their sponsors. And the call center tries to reach both the child, if they have a number for the child, and the sponsor. And the call center manages to reach about 80% of kids 30 days later. And anybody who's tried to do a telephone survey thinks that 80% is pretty good. Um, I noticed your you know, eyebrows went up. 80% response rate, most of us would be very pleased with. About 15 to 20% of um, children or sponsors, they're unable to locate in the sense that they don't return the phone call or they don't pick up the phone. That, it would be great if it were 100%, but to label those 20% of people who don't return the phone call as missing is really inaccurate. And I think particularly in the current context around immigration, that people might not pick up a phone call who are in the midst of immigration proceedings from the US government is maybe problematic from the standpoint of wanting to communicate with them, but is certainly understandable. So that would be one example. I think another example I would give is just that the shelters themselves are by and large, so the long-term shelters that ORR uses are mostly run by nonprofit organizations, often faith-based, small shelters. ORR has about 100 long-term shelter providers. A lot of those shelters might provide care for 50 or 100 children, so they're mostly small. And the people who work there by and large, don't make a ton of money, and they're mostly working there because they care very deeply about the well-being of those children. And I think there was a sense, again, partly because of this blurring of missions, that these were detention centers. And that led both to people thinking very badly about the centers themselves, but also stories about children escaping from these centers, where a lot of these centers don't even have fences around them. They aren't detention centers. They're not structured that way. In some jurisdictions, they're not allowed to have fences or gates or anything that would prevent children from leaving because they're considered to be kind of child care centers that don't have that. So I think there was kind of a misunderstanding of what the mission of the shelters was and therefore a misunderstanding of what it meant for children to leave. So I guess on that note, I'm kind of interested in if there's a misunderstanding is there steps that could be taken to better message what exactly is happening, either as a bureaucratic organization or even just maybe it's on the media to dig a little deeper and less sensationalize this topic? By and large, I've been pretty impressed by the media's work on this. And, and I think maybe that comes from, again, from working in child welfare. I have a feeling often, I haven't done this myself, so this is an empirical question. Somebody could look at how often there are articles about child welfare systems working well versus how often there are about child welfare systems working poorly. But mostly we read about cases where things have gone poorly. We read about the child that wasn't visited by the social worker and there was a very bad outcome and we read very little about the cases where services were rendered appropriately and a child might have been reunified with a parent successfully adopted or had some other outcome that we would think was positive. So I definitely think there's more work that can be done. I think in this program in particular, we have a set of very profound policy dilemmas and ethical and moral dilemmas around immigration that we haven't faced or resolved as a country. And sometimes 
either intentionally or unintentionally, we can focus on something very concrete and small and not focus on the bigger issue. So, you know, I think one of the challenges for Capitol Hill is to try to come up with policy solutions to overall immigration so that we aren't in a position where we have this situation with children arriving on their own and asking for asylum or asking to be reunified with their families that are here. Absolutely. So since some of those larger problems that we're facing right now require legislation and appropriation of funds, it's somewhat difficult to foresee those being addressed right now with the midterms coming up and the current political climate. What changes do you think can be done at the administrative level to address some of these problems or sort of without the policy process? Yeah. So, I mean, I think people are doing, I imagine people to be doing the best that they can with the resources that they have. And I'm torn when I think about how much attention the Unaccompanied Children's Program is getting now. I think in some ways that attention is really positive because I think it raises issues and concerns and sometimes causes policy changes. For example, uh, the policy on separating children and families I think wouldn't have been changed if there hadn't been as much attention. I do think sometimes when a program is under a microscope, it does cause people to have to worry both about what the impact of a policy change would be, but then also how it will look or be perceived. And I think that actually can make administrative changes be more difficult. So you might decide, for example, that fingerprinting parents is not actually helpful to the process because you may find empirically that the fingerprint process doesn't turn up very much information that helps you make a better choice about whether children are going to be placed with a parent. And you might find that the process of getting fingerprints takes a lot of time, so kids are in care for longer, and it also discourages some people from coming forward. But you have to analyze that problem, and that's a, that's a problem, and it's, you know, it's not clear to me under what circumstances you pursue fingerprints or not, but that's a problem that you could try to analyze and solve. But you also will have to think about how it will sound in the media if something bad happens and people can say, or somebody on the Hill can say, you stopped fingerprinting parents. You know, why did you do this bad thing when it sounds like it would be really good? You should fingerprint everybody, right? You should, you know, every caution that you can take, in theory, sounds like a good thing until you think about the costs of that. And sometimes weighing pros and cons is not what we're best at doing in the media and sometimes in political contexts as well. So I think the attention that the program is getting, again, has had some positives, but I think it probably makes it harder for people who are running the program to just focus on what would be best for kids and not worry as much about how it might look from the outside. So a little bit earlier, you had mentioned sort of a disconnect with two different organizations with competing missions kind of coming at each other um, as, as far as the separated family issue goes. I wanted to switch a little bit to academic work, and I was kind of reminded about the fact that you had mentioned in a paper last year that there's not a ton of research on the interaction between child support and child protective services. And in a lot of ways, you'd think that their missions are very much 
align. So can you speak a little bit about the consequences of them not interacting as much or academics not studying that as much and why that might be able to be rectified and what, what goods could come out of that? So I think one of the most exciting places for policy analysis and policy making is at the intersection between programs. And I think because academia is very siloed and government is very siloed and we tend to have our own areas of expertise and often we're structurally kind of constrained to focus on particular things. And I think that one of the great things about a policy school like McCourt and also a challenge is that it can bring together people who have expertise across substantive areas, but then also across methodologies and across theoretical frameworks. And that gives us kind of an opportunity to do things that overlap. And the challenge is to maintain those levels of expertise and then also have that interaction. So I think the child support and child welfare, which is an area, you know, there aren't that many people who are interested in child welfare and there aren't that many people who are interested in child support and it's a very small set of people who are interested in their interaction, Um, but I'm in that small set. And I think one of the challenges is there's a lot of technical details and so you really get in the weeds when you start seeing some of these problems. So a lot of the work that I've been doing in the last five years has focused on kind of obscure rules that say that when the government takes a child out of their parents' home, they can then ask those parents to pay child support in order to offset government costs associated with foster care. And in some ways, that might seem like it makes sense. You know, if if a father has to pay child support when the children are being taken care of by the mom, and typically children are removed most often from single mother homes, why shouldn't a mom whose children are being cared for in foster care have to pay child support to the government to offset the cost of her kids being in foster care? Now, it's a little different, right? She didn't volunteer to have her children taken away, typically, but that's sort of the logic of the program. What we were able to see, and this gets to some of our earlier discussions about big data, by pulling together data from two completely independent computer systems, one that tracks child support and another that tracks child welfare, we were able to analyze how often mothers are charged child support and to identify what the impact of that charging was. And what we found was that enforcing a child support order on a mom tended to delay the reunification of the child for about six months on average. And as you might expect, because you've all taken benefit cost analysis, that costs the government, even if the only thing we care about is government costs, that costs the government more for that child to be in care for six months longer than they save from the little bit of child support that they're usually able to get from what is typically a low-income mom. But if you also care about child well-being and you think that having moms and kids or parents and kids separated for a longer period of time is a problem, then it's also a, a big cost in that way. And this is an example of something that we could only see by pulling together data from these two systems. And it's an example of where policy analysis really was helpful in providing policymakers with information And there are a number of jurisdictions now that are thinking through policy changes that will keep this from happening. 
So one question that we've been asking all of our guests on the podcast this semester, and I apologize that we hadn't been able to give you this ahead of time, but I'm a little bit interested in your reading recommendations because everybody needs more reading, whether it's a book, a journal article, any sort of a newspaper article, anything that you would recommend to people who are more interested in the topics that we talked about today or might want to dive a little bit deeper into what we discussed. There's an article that Sherry Gleed wrote, and I'll recommend it in part because it's a very good piece, but also it meets a benefit-cost analysis because it's about five pages long. So it's really, you know, it's a good, good article to read. In it, she talks about the differences between being an economist, though I think you could broaden it to policy analysts, in an academic setting versus a government setting. And she talks about how policy analysis and academic research are different, which I think is interesting. But she also talks about the difference in the role of an academic and the role of somebody in government. Um, And one of the things that I think is really interesting about the piece is that she talks about in academia, and I think this goes um, for a lot of settings for students as well, though not as universally, There's kind of a desire to distinguish yourself, to have your voice, to have kind of the thing that you're saying which is identified with your perspective. And then in government, typically you don't want your name in the paper um, and you don't want anybody to associate you with a particular initiative. Your colleagues may know that you were behind something, but you don't want it, that just detracts from what the secretary or what the president is trying to achieve. And that that breeds a different kind of collaboration because you're working to solve a problem, but you don't have to worry about who's going to get the credit for it. You have to worry about solving that problem. So I think her piece is a really instructive thing to think about as you think about education and then also as you think about a career in public service. Great. Well, thank you so much. I think we're sadly out of time. Thank you very much. No, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the first podcast of our series on Rethinking Governance, GPPR's spring edition theme for 2019. Look for the second in our Rethinking Governance podcast series in the coming weeks as Editor-in-Chief Ahmad Shuja Jamal talks with Professor Andreas Kern about financial crises around the world and a previously unexplored association with those crises. Lastly, the call for papers for our spring edition journal is out. If you or anyone you know is interested in submitting a piece to Georgetown's graduate student-run academic journal, you can find the submission page on gppreview.com. That's gppreview.com. Thanks for listening.